All right. We're picking up tonight in Jeremiah chapter 4. And as my plan involves a little bit of catch up tonight, since I'd like to make it all the way through chapter 8, we're just going to jump right in at verse 1. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. So remember, where we are now, God has contrasted what's gone on with the northern tribes of Israel and what's gone on with Judah. And the contrast is basically that Israel wasn't as awful as Judah because Judah witnessed the full history of the northern tribes, watched their rebellion, watched God through the prophets call them to repentance, watched them resist that call, and then watched them endure the judgment of the Assyrian captivity. Whereas Judah sees all of that play out and then walks in her sister's footstep. And so you may remember um, the passage that we're in begins back in chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? And so here he sees Israel as if he's given them a certificate of divorce because of their infidelity, but in above and beyond what he owes Israel, he makes an offer here. He presents it on the table. And if he, sa he says, if you return, not only will you come back, not only, as it says back in chapter 3, verse 15, will I give you shepherds, kings, after my own heart, as David did, not only will I give you uh, my presence in such a way that the ark, which was never in the territory of Israel, but in the territory of Judah, the ark will not be remembered because I'll be so present among your people. And here he says, if you return fully and completely, people will long to be like the Israel that I will make you. They will bless yourselves in their name, meaning may, may it be unto you as it was to Israel. Verse 3, for thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So notice here he addresses Judah and Jerusalem, and he's been doing that actually the whole time. Israel is gone. They're not really within hearing. Uh, Jeremiah's target audience is really, in actuality, Judah, and so what we've seen then is Israel becomes a measure of the seriousness of Judah's sin, but also a measure of the depths of God's grace, a depth of his mercy. Even now, Israel could return. How much more should Judah return now before judgment? But what's the problem? He says right now, the seed of this word, this call to repentance, it's like throwing out seed among the thorns. It just can't bear fruit. The soil and its nutrients are already taken up with these things that need to be removed first. Remember, that was Jeremiah's calling, to uproot and then to plant. But there's a part of that that Jeremiah can't do. The second image there in verse 4 uh, is a call to re-circumcise themselves, but not just externally, but internally in their hearts. As we'll see tonight, um, Judah has a semblance of religion. They maintain the rituals of their ancestors. They continue to participate in the sacrifices and see the temple as a badge of honor that God is with them. But internally, it's a different story. It's like when Isaiah says, these people confess me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so he says, there's some heart surgery that has to go on here. You have to open up your heart unless... My wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And so it's a call to true and to deep heartfelt repentance. Verse 5, declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, 
Blow the trumpet through the land. Cry aloud and say, Assemble, and let us go into the fortified cities. Raise a standard toward Zion. Flee for safety. Stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. So Jeremiah speaks here about the inevitability of judgment as if it's right on the horizon, as if the trumpet's uh, warning of an incoming army are already blowing. And he says, flee, hurry up, get out of there. Verse 7, a lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He's gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your city will be in ruins without inhabitants. For this, put on sackcloth, lament, and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. Now, we already saw a call to deep and true lamentation. Uh, Here, the call is the same, and it kind of shows that Putting on sackcloth, being in mourning, is going to be a part of Judah's history. They can do it now in full and complete repentance, or they will do it when they have things to mourn besides their sins, the consequences of God. And so Jeremiah says, you're living life as if it's business as usual, as if tomorrow will be just like today and next week will be just like this week. You're planning for and preparing for your harvest, and he says, but... Uh, you're on the cusp of disaster. Verse 9, in that day, declares the Lord, courage shall fail both kings and officials. The priests shall be appalled and the prophets astounded. Then I said, here Jeremiah speaks, ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people in Jerusalem saying, it shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. Now, that's a confusing verse, isn't it? It almost sounds like Jeremiah is accusing God here and saying, but I thought everything would be well. Now, that doesn't really make sense of the context because we find this right in the midst of a warning that says basically not all is well. And so there's one of two things happening here. Um, Either Jeremiah is speaking with a bit of cynicism and sarcasm Uh, And the reason why that makes sense is because the prophets around Jeremiah, the ones who are in the employ of the kings, the one who are constantly speaking, who we will see later tonight, have not the spirit of God, but just, just wind. They're just blowhards. Their message has been peace, peace. Everything's going to be well. And so it may be here, lacking a way to convey this in the grammar itself, that here he enters in and he says, this is what the language of the prophets are going to be like. They're going to say, Lord, you surely utterly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying it shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. Again, there may be a temptation to read this as being, uh, as being that God was using the false prophets so that his people wouldn't be prepared. Right? That's the most natural reading of this passage that Jeremiah goes, hey, wait a minute. What does this all mean? But again, we need to remember that Jeremiah also speaks for the Lord. And so as we've seen before in 2 Kings, if God is playing deception, he plays with an open hand. There's no idea of him hiding the reality of the falseness of those prophets. It's right here in the words of Jeremiah. He's calling them out. Judgment has not yet come. And so there's a double foolishness in believing in them at that point. But it is one of the more difficult verses to digest in Jeremiah. Let's move on. Verse 11. At that time it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a hot wind from the bare heights in the desert towards the daughter of my people, not to winnow or to cleanse. Okay, Wind, like for sailors on the sea, is a valuable thing in an agrarian culture. And that's because wheat comes wrapped in this wrapper called chaff. And the most labor, uh, labor unintensive way to get the chaff off the wheat is to lift it up into the air on a windy day and let the wind separate the chaff from the wheat. Okay, and so that's what it's talking about here. That's called winnowing. And he says, but this wind is not the gentle wind needed for winnowing. It's not for a cleanse, he says. He says, a wind too full for this comes for me. 
Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. Now there is a Middle Eastern super hot wind that can cause all sorts of damage called a Sirocco. And so they know what God is talking about here. He's using a meteorological metaphor to talk about his coming judgment. But notice it's not going to be a cleansing. God often and regularly disciplines his people as a means to get their attention and bring them back. But this isn't discipline, it's something else. Look at verse 13. Behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind, his horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim. Okay. Dan is in the northern reaches of the northern tribes of Israel. Of Israel proper, Dan is in the very north. In fact, it's where we find one of the two heads of the Jordan River that runs all the way through Israel. One of them begins in Dan. And so this voice proclaiming from Dan is the warning of an impending, incoming army. Verse 16, Warn the nations that he is coming. Announce to Jerusalem, besiegers come from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field are they against her all around because she rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Okay, Keepers of a field, the idea here is that they post a watch around all of Judah. They surround them. Um, but notice here, it's not the ar army they should fear because... It is God's judgment and not just foreign powers. Verse 18, your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom and it's bitter. It has reached your very heart. Now earlier there was the call to circumcise their heart, to reach down into their hearts before it was too late. And he says if you don't, the bitterness that will come upon you will reach the heart. Verse 19, my anguish my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Again, we see the empathy of Jeremiah. He doesn't nonchalantly uh, or objectively lay out this future as if it's not something he's invested in. But here, he engages with it fully and completely. Physically, his heart is beating quickly. It's as if he's in the midst of this coming judgment. Verse 20, crash follows hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste. My curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children and have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, but how to good they do not know. Now, I want you to notice there that when we start fast-beating hearts and wailing, that's clearly Jeremiah, but when we get to verse 22, when it refers to, for my people here, is this still Jeremiah? Is he still expressing himself? My people, Ben-Ami, that's a major expression that God uses for Israel. And I would suggest to you that we don't have to choose between them because Jeremiah, in his compassionate response to his own people here, rightly reflects the heart of God. And we'll see more and more of this to come. Jeremiah is not compassionate while his God is capricious. Jeremiah is learning the heart God has for his people. And God not only brings judgment, is not only angry with Israel, but he's also mourning and here we see the problem is uh, utter foolishness. We'll see this again tonight. There is an insanity to rebellion against God. He says they do understand some things. They're very good at doing evil. But they've forgotten how to do good. It's like they've never learned. Verse 23, I looked on the earth and behold it was without form and void. And to the heavens and they had no light. Okay, when he says without form and void there, he's evoking Genesis 1, chapter 2. Excuse me, Genesis 1, verse 2. And the earth was without form and void. In other words, Jeremiah is looking at this impending judgment as if it's a complete reversal of creation itself. 
a return back to the chaos that existed before creation. And so he looks to the heavens, and now it's merely darkness. There's no light there. Verse 24, I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. Okay, mountains are basically the most reliable, stable thing in the world, and even those are being shaken. It's as if the pillars of the earth themselves are shaking with what God does. I looked, verse 25, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord and before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. It's amazing, right at the pinnacle, when we see there's nothing left, God steps in and he says, but not totally, but not utterly, but not completely. He operates under restraint here. He provides room for the remnant. This, again, we'll see more of in the coming chapters. But it's, it's a surprising piece of rhetoric, isn't it? You would expect this not to stop right at the end, right at its crisis, right at its climax, God pulls back. Verse 28, for the earth shall mourn and the heavens above shall be dark, for I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. Now there's some, there's some reference there to the words of Isaiah in the, in the 40s, 40 through 49 um, of the power of God's word and the fact that he keeps his promises. But what's really striking is when it puts here the earth mourning and the heavens in darkness and then says, for I have spoken. What we have in creation is God's word so powerful it creates. And here the contrast is God's word so powerful it uncreates. Right? Verse 29, at the noise of horsemen and archer, every city takes to flight. They enter thickets, they climb among rocks, all the cities are forsaken and no man dwells in them, and you, O desolate one, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourselves with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Okay. What, what's the suggestion here? Is, and here, the armies are gathering for war, doom is impending, and what is Judah doing? She's making herself up for a night on the town, right? In fact, the imagery here of painting on makeup and enlarging eyes, uh, the idea here is one of prostitution. You should think of the police. It's that red dress that Judah is putting on, right? But notice here, in vain do you beautify yourself because your lovers despise you. They seek your life. Here is another foreign power representing foreign gods, and all, as Judah's painted here, all they can think about is, oh good, new opportunities for love affairs, for sexual relations, for idolatry. They've joined themselves with other foreign powers. They've joined themselves with other foreign gods. But this one is different. In fact, look at verse 31. For I heard a cry of a woman in labor, anguished as one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hands, woe is me, I'm fainting before the murderers. It's a pretty dark picture, isn't it? Here she goes to meet her lovers and her lovers overwhelm her and tear her to shreds. But again, this is strong language because God is trying to get their attention. Chapter five, run to and fro throughout the streets of Jerusalem, look and take note. Search your squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. God gives Jeremiah a mission here. He says, go door to door, look in every room, peer down every hallway, see if you can find just one person who is faithful, a man who does justice and seeks truth. Now, this is actually pretty striking imagery because it's somewhat familiar. You may remember in Genesis 18, as God receives hospitality at the tent of Abraham. And then they go and they look over the valley and beneath is the city of Sodom. 
And God reveals to his servant Abraham what's about to happen, that he's sent angels down to investigate, and if things are as bad as they hear, he's going to wipe Sodom off the map. But Abraham knows that his family, that Lot, Lot's wife, Lot's children, which would be, uh, you know, Abraham's nephew and second cousins or something like that. And so he starts to say, he says, all right, fine, they deserve it, judgment is impending, but what if there's righteous people that live there? How many would it take to spare the city? Would you spare it, God, for 50 righteous people? And he says, if I found 50 righteous there, I would not, I would not judge the city. And he goes, well, what about 25? And he continues to push until he gets down to 10 men. And God says, if I can find 10, I will not destroy the city. And he doesn't find 10. He finds a half-righteous man, Lot, and his family. But even they, right, in God's justice, are removed from the city before destruction comes. In fact, the angel tells Lot to hurry up because they cannot get on with the show until Lot is to safety. But here, to Judah, God says it would only take one. Just one righteous person and I would spare the city. Now Ezekiel says that at this point in time, Judah is worse than Sodom ever was. And yet God displays such mercy. It also, of course, is a measure of how bad things had really gotten. Verse 2, though they say, as the Lord lives, okay, as the Lord lives there is an, is an oath. It's swearing. It's the equivalent of us raising our right hand and placing our left hand on the Bible. Okay? So they speak honestly, they swear that they're telling the truth, and they do it in the name of God, but they swear falsely. Even their expressions of honesty are empty. Verse 3, O Lord, do not turn, do not your eyes look for the truth? You've struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You've consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. He goes, well, maybe that's true in the ignorant masses. Here are poor people, but maybe they just don't know better. Now, if you go back to Deuteronomy, they should have known better. The leaders and the priests were committed to making sure that everyone, but he goes, maybe I'll find righteous among the great ones of Judah. Verse 5, I'll go to the great, the leaders, the wealthy, the, you know, the policy makers. I'll go to the great and will speak to them, for they know the way, to, the way of Lord, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. Okay. And so he goes and he looks at the leaders, but all of the leaders have shown unrestraint, have pulled away from the service of God as, like an ox breaking his yoke. Therefore, verse 6, a lion from the forest shall strike them down. A wolf from the desert shall devastate them. A leopard is watching in their cities. Everyone who goes out shall be torn into pieces because their transgressions are many and their apostasies great. Now, this imagery here of wild animals is probably once again talking about this impending judgment through Babylon. Um, but notice verse 7, how can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things? Now, probably here, verse 7 is still talking about the great ones. It's talking about the leaders. And they haven't even led their own children in the ways of the Lord. Uh, and then notice here um, that they have uh, frequented prostitutes. And now it's gotten to the point where it says that they lust after each other's wives. You know, adultery becomes part of the paradigm here. And so he says, shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord, and shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Go up through her vine rows and destroy, but make not a full end. Strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. 
okay? And so this is talking about an extreme pruning, right? Walking through the vineyard and cutting it way back. Verse 11, for the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. They've spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, he will do nothing. Literally, that sentence there, the emphasis is on the he. He will do nothing. And so here is Israel, uh, Judah in particular, worshiping all of these other gods, concerned about appeasing them, but no longer do they have any fear of the Lord. And we'll see the reason they think that God won't get involved is because they're still going through the motions of worship. They've still got the sacrifices. They've still got the temple. So he will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets will become wind. The word is not then uh, in them. Thus it shall be done to them. He says, the ones who make you such promises that cry peace, peace, again, they're just a bunch of windbags. They don't have my spirit, but they're just speaking for themselves and their word will come to nothing. Verse 14, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I'm making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. And so the empty prophecies of the false prophets are just wind. But the words of Jeremiah are going to be like an all-consuming fire. I find it interesting, in fact, that the one thing you can't do to beat out fire is employ the wind right? Here, they can huff and they can puff, but it only increases the power of the fire here. And then he makes clear here again, verse 15, behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It's an enduring nation. It's an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees, your fortified cities in which you trust. They shall beat down with the sword. But even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. For the third time, we see God making a promise that judgment is coming, but it won't be final that there will be a remnant. Verse 19, and when your people say, that's the survivors, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You, Jeremiah, shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so shall you serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. And so even here we get a preview of Jeremiah's future because he will live to see all of these things come to pass. He will live in the midst of exiled Judah. And he will live as a testimony to say, here is what this means. I tried to tell you it was coming. Now that it's happened, let me interpret it for you. As you worshipped foreign gods, now you shall serve the people of those gods in a land that is not yours. Verse 20, declare this in the house of Jacob. Proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but see not but hear not. Again, drawing from the ministry of Isaiah, that was the complaint of the people. In fact, those actual words in Isaiah apply not to the people, but to the gods. But now the people have become like what they worship, and so just as their stone statues have eyes but cannot see, now Israel's lost the ability to see as well. Verse 22, do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as a boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. And so again, Judah and their relationship with God is contrasted with nature and nature's relationship with God. And the picture is here of, you know, these massive bodies of water that we call the ocean and this restraint that we call the shore. And how the waves beat against that restraint and the tide even moves in and out. And every once in a while, you know, through like a tsunami, it breaks its bounds. And then it's always pulled back. He pictures it here as if the waves are in a constant war against God. He's like, but they never win. 
They've never come out on top. The earth has never been covered in the waves, not since the flood, and God promises not to do that again. But, verse 23, this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart, and they've turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God, who gives the rain in its season, and the autumn rain and spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. In other words, even if he takes this picture of nature of the ocean in revolt against God, Israel can't see God as a harsh master. He's the one who provides for them every season, who provides rain so they have crops, who set up festivals so that they could celebrate the goodness of God. He says, your iniquities have turned these away and your sins have kept good from you. For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men. Okay. And so he says what's happening in Israel is that there are people who are set on, actively pursuing, taking advantage of others, capturing them, taking, um, you know, like, um, like Jesus says about the Pharisees who devour widows' houses, right? Making property grabs against the weak and taking advantage of them, okay? He says, like a cage, verse 27, full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they've become great and rich, Okay. And so the idea isn't that they've got you know, a cage in the basement with their neighbors in it. The idea is that deceitfully they've stolen the things that belong to their neighbors and become tremendously rich. And that's why their house is full of deceit because they've taken advantage of. In fact, verse 28 says they've grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the needy. Now notice there, God's accusation is not merely that they're doing wicked things, but also that they're not doing just things, right? Not just that they are taking advantage of the fatherless and the poor and the widow, but instead they should be stepping in and being the defender of the one who sees the fatherless prosper the defender of the needy and says shall I not punish them for these things declares the Lord and shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this that's the refrain of this section right we've already seen that before verse 30 an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction there was a checks and balances in Israel what was to maintain how you knew the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet? One of the things was the law of Moses was to be a filter, a representation of the consistent and past speaking of God that all knew supposed speaking for God was to be weighed against. And so the priests served a particular place in educating the people in the laws of Moses, in, in their history, in, in teaching the people, they were to prepare them, to protect them against false prophets. But here, the priests are in the pocket of the prophets. They're both mutually benefiting from this deception. And then he says, my people love to have it so. It reminds us of the warning Paul makes about our own times, where he says, a time is coming where people will not endure sound doctrine but who have itching ears looking for what's novel, which is just another way of saying looking for what's false. He says, my people love to have it so. Everybody is on the same board. This um, conspiracy is a conspiracy of all. They're all for it. And he asks this question at the end, but what will you do when the end comes? Chapter 6, verse 1. Flee for safety, O people of Benjamin, from the midst of Jerusalem. Now remember a couple of things. One, Anathoth, where Jeremiah is from, is in the tribe of Benjamin's territory. And so he speaks to them particularly and personally here, um, and these are his neighbors. Second, remember that the tribe of Benjamin is to the north of Judah. Okay? And so again, we see impending danger from the north. And then notice, blow a trumpet in Tekoa. Now, uh, the word there for trumpet and the word for tekoa are surprisingly close. There's a little bit of a play on words there. 
and raise a signal on Beth Hasherem, for disaster looms out of the north and great destruction. Okay, when you add in uh, Tekoa and Beth Hasherim, we're starting to circle now around Jerusalem. It's envisioning here a siege. And so the army doesn't just come from the north and attack one wall. They come and they split and they begin to wrap around Jerusalem. It's the noose that they're being trapped in. Verse 2, the lovely and delicately bred I will destroy the daughter of Zion. Shepherds with their flocks shall come against her. They shall pitch their tents all around her. They shall pasture each in his place. And so the picture here is instead of shepherds, right, it's generals and their armies. And they're going to lay out on the fields like shepherds with their sheep. Verse 4, prepare war against her. Arise and let us attack at noon. Okay, now that's a little jarring if you understand how, um, how the rules of war worked in the ancient Near East. You always started your battle first thing in the morning so that you had a full day, okay? But here, it's as if they show up and they can't even wait for tomorrow. And so they start at noon and then notice what happens next. It says, let us attack at noon and then woe to us for the day declines, for the shadows of evening lengthen. Arise, let us attack by night and destroy your palaces. And so they can't wait to attack and they won't stop the attack. They won't rest at dark but continue to push for thus says the Lord of hosts, cut down her trees, cast up a siege mound against Jerusalem. This is the city that must be punished. There is nothing but oppression within her. As a well keeps its water fresh, so she keeps fresh her evil. A constant source of new wickedness. Violence and destruction are heard within her. Sickness and wounds are ever before me. Be warned, O Jerusalem, lest I turn from you in disgust lest I make you a desolation, an uninhabited land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they shall glean thoroughly as a vine, the remnant of Israel, like a grape gatherer passes your hand again over its branches. And so again, there's, there's going to be a remnant, but even that is going to be ransacked, as if a vineyard uh, keeper is walking through and just running his hand along the vines, making sure under the large leaves at the top of the branch that he hasn't missed any bunches. Verse 10, to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. And so Jeremiah's whole ministry is built mostly on a warning. But the people will not heed it. And the picture here is that their ears are so closed, it's as if they're uncircumcised. They're not oriented towards God, just like we saw with their hearts a few chapters ago. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn, and they take no pleasure in it. Now, that's not just because the word God has for them isn't pleasant. Okay. Because when we follow Jesus, when we endure the discipline of the Lord, sometimes that involves hard words. In fact, one of the places where God's grace begins in our lives is with confrontation. It's with revealing our sins, with shining light and showing us and bringing about conviction. But like Proverbs says about the wounds of a friend, they're more faithful than the kisses of an enemy. There's something that we, we love and we appreciate, not that we all collectively always respond rightly and properly when God speaks into our lives, but as we know the character of God and because he's patient with us, just like he's patient with Judah, the word takes root. It bears fruit in our life, but that's not what's happening here. Verse 11, therefore, I'm full of the wrath of the Lord. I'm weary of holding it in. Again, notice the picture there is one of patience and long suffering. God has not been willing or desiring to bring out judgment, but he's running out of options. Now, notice what he says, pour it out upon the children in the street and upon the gatherings of young men also. Both husband and wife shall be taken, the elderly and the very aged. Their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and their wives together, for I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. In other words, the judgment is going to be total. It's going to stretch across every area. It's going to impact their children and their elderly, their poor and their rich are all going to experience the judgment that is to come. Verse 13, for from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from the prophet to the priest, 
everyone deals falsely. And so what we see is a culture that has become so tremendously corrupt. Verse 14, they've healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And so the prophet and priest have come, and they've recognized the diagnosis, but they've mistreated it. This is a case of malpractice. The leaders who should have brought deep and total healing have provided band-aid solutions and just said, it's really not that big of a deal. Everything's going to be fine. I don't know if you've had an opportunity to watch Chernobyl yet, the five-part miniseries that HBO put together to catalog what happened uh, with that nuclear reactor, but this sounds tremendously familiar. Over and over again, the people in power downplayed the significance of what was happening to save their own careers, to save the reputation of Russia, and they did it all the while people were dying, and they just kept denying. It's a similar thing here. You know, they, they thought what was necessary was just some bandages for burns, but in actuality, the radiation had gone deep to the core. Verse 15, were they ashamed? When they committed abomination, no, they were not all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. They became mature and, and hardened in their sin. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At that time, I shall punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. And so here God gives them a call and he says, the road is right in front of you. I'll set up another branching fork in the road. Just choose the right one this time. So many wrong roads. They're so far off path, but God is so sovereign. He sets another road home right in front of them. And it's not a new road. It's the old one. It's the ancient paths. It's the ways that were laid out in the book of Moses. But they said, we won't walk in it. I set watchmen over you, saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. He says, I've sent you prophets, warning you where this road leads, walking along the road, begging you to turn around and go back to where the fork was and take the other path. But they said, we will not pay attention. Okay. Notice, this isn't even culpable ignorance. This is pervasive and uh, persistent resistance against God. Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, old earth, behold, I'm bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they've not paid attention to my words. As for my law, they have rejected it. What use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba, or sweet cane from distant lands? And so he says here, all of this despite the fact that they only use the best ingredients for worship in the temple. Their hearts are stubborn. They will not hear the word of the Lord. They will not return to the ancient ways, but they've maintained the temple practice. And they make sure that they only bring before God the very best, imported from distant lands, right? And he says here, your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor are your sacrifices pleasing to me. Again, Jeremiah is not against the temple worship that's prescribed in the book of Leviticus, but in, it, uh, in and of itself, it is not sufficient to satisfy God. Therefore, verse 21, thus says the Lord, behold, I'll lay before this people stumbling blocks against which they shall stumble. Fathers and sons together, neighbors and friends shall perish. Okay. Remember what we've been talking about, walking. And so here, God's just going to put things in the path to trip them up. Verse 22, thus says the Lord, Behold, a people is coming from the north country. A great nation is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. They lay hold on the bow and the javelin. They are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them is like a roaring sea. They ride on horses, set in array as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Zion. We've heard the report of it. Our hands have fallen helpless. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain as a woman in labor. Go now out into the field, nor walk on the road, for the enemy has a sword. Terror is at every side. O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son. A most bitter lamentation, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. 
And so again, we see the call to take on the garments of mourning. And he says, you will do this, but that's how inevitable it is that you will do this. And so instead, do it now. And then we get to kind of the hardest part of God's diagnosis. Notice what he says in verse 27. I've made you, Jeremiah, a tester of metals among my people that you may know and test their ways. Jeremiah's ministry, unfortunately, was not going to function as a responded-to message of repentance, but a demonstration of how hard-hearted the people were. And so normally, a tester of metals would be able to separate the true from the false, the fool's gold from the real gold. Right? That's what a touchstone does. You rub fool's gold against a touchstone and it doesn't react the way real gold does. And so Jeremiah's ministry shows how deep the problem is. In fact, notice verse 28, they are all stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders. They are bronze and iron. All of them act corruptly. Bronze and iron, they're both being a, a, a metal of stubbornness, right? Strong and resistant and also being a lesser metal, right? Usually when we find ore, we find lesser metals like bronze and iron mixed in with silver and the higher metals, okay? Notice verse 29, the bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. In vain the refining goes on for the wicked are not removed. Rejected silver they are called for the Lord has rejected them. And so he says, your ministry, Jeremiah, it's like a refiner's fire and the heat is turned up all the way to 11, it's cranking on this metal and there's no silver to be found. You can't refine what is only dross. Okay. And so, rejection. Chapter 7. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house. Okay. So now we've kind of moved on from the first section of Jeremiah and here we enter into a call for a very particular ministry of Jeremiah, uh, what's sometimes called the temple sermon, because that's where he is, right? Go stand in the gate of the temple. Now, what you should imagine is what we're about to read. This is Jeremiah's day-in, day-out repeated sermon as people come in and out of the temple, right? This is the equivalent of him getting on public access, right? It's out there, it's visible, it's clear, and... Uh, if he's doing this during one of the great festivals of Israel, then people from all over Judah are in town and they all have business at the temple, bringing their sacrifices. And so here he's posted there and notice, proclaim the, uh, there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, Israel's posture was everything's going to be fine because we're the place where God's presence is. Maybe they looked over their history with Israel and it's like, well, yeah, Israel was wiped out, but they didn't have the temple. They didn't have the sacrifices they didn't have the worship of the true Lord. God was not present with them as he is with us. So everything will be fine. And so the, the temple of the Lord had become a, a byword or a watchword. Ah, don't worry about it. We've got the temple. He says, don't kid yourself. Don't misunderstand. He says, verse 5, For if you, were true, if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, and if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. And so what's required here is something deeper, a full amending of their ways, not just a maintaining of the ritualistic side of their worship. And then notice, this is so provocative in verse 7, he says, then I'll let you dwell here in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Right here in the midst of threatening to remove them from the land, he recognizes that the plan was permanent. In fact, as we've been seeing, God is going to leave a remnant. And through Jeremiah's ministry, he will tell them that the remnant will return after 70 years 
of judgment. They will rebuild. They will restore. In fact, they'll rebuild this temple. But, but there's a tension there. There's a difference between God's promises being readily open and available and us actually enjoying them. God's word is faithful and true. His promises uh, are available, but we have to enter into them. We have to receive them. We have to follow him. We can't say to ourselves, you know, but I was baptized as a child. We can't say to ourselves, but I'm a member of the church in good standing. We can't say to ourselves all of these external things as being evidence that God is with us. If we don't amend our ways, if we don't follow in righteousness, if we don't circumcise our hearts, if it's not as true on the inside as it is on the outside. Verse 8, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered. The idea here is that they see the temple like the safe place and tag, right? You can't tag me, I'm safe. But notice here he says, meanwhile, you break six of the ten commandments, right? Six, seven, eight, nine one and two are all on that list right there. Okay. It's similar to what Jesus says when he says to the Pharisees again, the religious leaders, in the smallest details, you tithe your mint and your cumin. All the way down there, but you neglect the greater call for mercy and justice. He says here, it's, it's not going to work. He says, you're doing these abominations. The temple won't save you. Verse 11, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. He says, what do you have in the midst of God's temple but a bunch of wickedness? Verse 12, go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. He says, okay, object lesson, history lesson. If you feel so safe just because the temple is standing, because the sacrifices continue, because the lamps are still lit, how about you go visit Shiloh? Now, Shiloh was the place where the uh, tabernacle and the ark originally settled in the days of Joshua. And it's still there in the days of Eli and in the days of Samuel. And because of Eli's foolish and wicked two sons, they end up carrying the ark out into battle against the Philistines, but God is not with them. And the Philistines win, and they capture the ark, and they also ransack and destroy the tabernacle in Shiloh. Okay. And so he says, Exhibit A, we've been here before. In fact, that was the mistake of Eli's sons. All we need is this ark, this object of power, this thing that is the very throne of God, and we cannot help but win. But they were wrong. Now remember again, this may be especially significant to Jeremiah because if he is from Anathoth, which he is, and if his father was a priest, which means that Jeremiah is a Levite from the tribe of Levi, um, then he may very well be the banished family of Eli. This may be the last place where his family a long, long time ago served before Solomon deposed them and built the new temple. Okay. And so verse 13, And now because you've done all these things, declares the Lord, when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And then when I called, you did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh. He says, second verse, same as the first. It's going to happen again, even though it's the place where I chose to put my name. Verse 15, I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. Exhibit B, you've seen how this went with Israel, Ephraim being one of the northern tribes and standing in here as a representative. He says, you should know how this goes. And, and notice what's going on here. They are holding on to their sin because they feel like they have sort of, um, you know, a, a non-aggression pact, right? They feel like there's some clause in the contract that keeps them safe. As long as we have the temple, we can both persist in our wickedness 
and not endure God's judgment. It's a, it's a religious loophole. Right? Verse 16, as for you, Jeremiah, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or a prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. Now those are strong words. God says what's, what's happening now in the days of Jeremiah truly is irreversible. And that even Jeremiah's prayers won't help, despite the fact that James reminds us that the prayers of a righteous man avail much. Despite the fact that Ezekiel, God goes looking for an intercessor and cannot find one. Here he says, don't even pray anymore, Jeremiah. It's set. It's resolved. Now it's worth pointing out here that that's relatively unique circumstances. That God reserves the right in his knowledge, to know when late is too late, when far is too far, when the irreversible is truly just that irreversible. But we don't know that. Right? Here God reveals to Jeremiah uh, something he did not know. He draws a line in, a sand, in the sand, but we don't have that. And so our intercession should continue. Our hope should maintain. Our ministry should continue. Verse 17, do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. Worship was a family affair for the queen of heaven. That's how fully involved, so fully given over the culture is. They pour out their drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, upon man and beast, upon the trees and the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and it will not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. Now, if you go back to the book of Leviticus and look at Leviticus chapters 1 through 5, you find five different offerings that God commands Israel to make. Okay. Here, God is dealing with two of them, the first one and the last one. The last one, although it's not mentioned here, is the one that normal average Israelites ate from when they offered their sacrifice. It was the peace offering. It was the fellowship offering. It was the last offering that was offered after the other ones had been taken care of, after the burnt offering, after the sin offering had dealt with the person's sin. Now they were to enjoy God's presence, celebrate, to have effectively a divine picnic. They were participants in this one. And he says, but you might as well just eat the burnt offering. The burnt offering was the first one. And what made it unique was, although the peace offering was the one that even the offerer got to eat, the burnt offering was the one that no one ate, fully consumed upon the altar. And he says, your worship is so meaningless, go ahead and eat it. It would be less offensive to me than the life that you're living. In fact, there's a smart correlation between these things because the burnt offering was an offering of consecration, fully consumed. And they're not even half-hearted. They're just going through the motions, and so he says, you might as well do it badly. You might as well, you know, flub the ritual. Let's see, where are we at? Thank you, Richard. 22. For in that day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. Now your translation might add only there. That's clearly the idea in the context. He's not saying, I never asked for sacrifices, because he did. What he's saying was, did I ever give you the feeling that this was going to be enough? Remember, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, the worship, all of that follows the giving of the Ten Commandments and the call for them to be holy as God is holy. It's not until... Uh, it's not until the tabernacle is set up and Moses himself tries to enter in and God being a consuming fire, that's not going to work that we're introduced to how it is that they navigate the temple. Okay. 
But this command I gave them, verse 23, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you, parroting there the early words of Exodus. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backwards and not forwards. From that day, the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt, to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. And so this has been a generational pattern of stubbornness uh, and unrighteousness. Okay, it's not new. Yet, they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck, and they did worse than their fathers. It's not just that they haven't improved. They've persistently gotten worse. There's been a downward spiral of Israel's behavior. Verse 27, so you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. Again, it's worth remembering here that Jeremiah had a hard ministry. He knew up front that his, his message was one of testimony, it was one of witness, but it was going to be futile in its impact. Verse 28, you shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It's cut off from their lips. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. Now the idea of a haircut there is either the breaking of a Nazareth vow, right? And so hair was not to be cut during the vow, but their vow has been desecrated. This consecrated people, Israel, might as well, again, no longer don the externals of a covenant that they don't keep. Or the idea is, again, one of lamentation. One of the ways that you reflected your mourning for the death of others in the ancient world was to shave your head. Okay. Verse 30, for the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They've set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. He says, even in the midst of the temple, there is altars to worship other gods. Now, he may be looking backwards to the ministry, uh, to the rule of Manasseh. Uh, or we may be moving now on past the reforms of Josiah to the ministry of Jehoiakim. Okay. But either way, he speaks here as if the temple itself isn't set aside and holy for God, but now houses in uh, idolatry. In fact, verse 31, they've built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. And he says, also they had perpetuated child sacrifice to Molech. And they had done it in what we now call Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom. Okay? Um, and we know, for example, that this was a practice that Josiah ended. Specifically, 2 Kings 23.10 tells us he put this to an end. But maybe Jehoiakim started it back up again. It wouldn't surprise us. It would fit with his character. It would fit with what happens in Israel. Um, but that's how bad things were. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth, Topheth because there is no room elsewhere. And so he says, the valley is going to be renamed because of the destruction of this judgment. And he says, it's going to become a mass grave. Verse 33, the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence in their cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. Now the Bible has this habit of connecting joyous sounds and weddings and therefore the lack of them to God's judgment. But the thing that we often miss is the wedding is an expression of the perpetuation of Israel as a people. It's the beginning of the new generation, the forming of new families that will lead to new children, right? But here, that's not going to be happening anymore. The land is going to be emptied and the people are going to be deported. Okay. Now, we'll stop there for the night, but you may notice just looking there, chapter 8, verse 1 picks up in the same place. Um, and so keep in mind where we are. 
Now, obviously, this part of Jeremiah is pretty heavy, and it's not the last place of Jeremiah that's pretty heavy. His ministry is a calling to lay it on thick, and yet his warning of judgment goes unheeded. And I think there is a simple and important reminder for us of what happens to those who resist God's word, to those who prevail and persist in sin. It's not just a same-as-always constant present-tense choice. It's a hardening. It's an obstinacy. It's uh, a growing in blindness and deafness. The Bible always maintains that sin and rebellion is not just foolish, uh, but it is, again, hardening. And so what we see here in, in Jeremiah is, is a horrible thing. But again, it's worth remembering that this is in the context of God's tremendous long-suffering and patience. It's in the context of even here, in their last of days, a proclamation and an invitation to repent. It's in the context of a, of a God who even at this point says, yet not completely and promises a remnant and promises uh, beyond judgment. But judgment nonetheless. Let's pray. Father, the greatest problem we have with, with the idea of your judgment is an unrealistic understanding of how, how sin really works, an unrealistic understanding of how deep it goes in our own hearts and how great the need is. But also, we get a good juxtaposition with your grace, Lord, because if it weren't for your grace, if your word hadn't gone forth, if it hadn't been living and active in us, if you hadn't sent those to proclaim like Jeremiah in our lives, repent and believe, then the road we would have walked down eternally is one of distancing ourselves from you, hardening ourselves to you. We, th we thank you, therefore, Lord, for the Jeremiahs, for the Isaiahs, for the Pauls and the Philips and the Barnabas, for those who carry the message of good news, of forgiveness. And we look at their feet and we call them beautiful, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you're so ready and willing and able to save us. I pray, Lord, that we would also be those messengers. That we would take sin seriously and your grace more seriously. Pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.